0: I'd like to welcome David the Good. So David has a YouTube channel where he talks about permaculture and gardening and how to grow in the Florida sand, (laughs) uh, all kinds of fun stuff like that. He's written like a gazillion books. We'll talk about that later on. So why don't you tell us, David, a little bit about yourself, where you are. What you grow?
1: Well, currently I live in lower Alabama. I'm just a couple of minutes north of the Florida border. I grew up in Florida. I'm a native Floridian. I garden in South Florida, I garden in North Central Florida. And then I moved to Alabama after having lived overseas for a few years. Came back to the States and moved to Alabama because it was affordable and uh, there's still land here, and Florida is about full. And uh, so I've got a little homestead here. I have been experimenting with crops that fit this climate zone from around the world, rather than taking northern crops and trying to adapt them down here. What I've tried to do is look more to the tropics and to the Mediterranean and to Southeast Asia and other places where it would have the heat and humidity. And then, of course, there's that balance between sometimes it's going to freeze here. So the tropical stuff doesn't go all the way through. And sometimes it's not cold enough for the temperate stuff on this edge and the climate seems to shift a little bit from year to year too sometimes you get a really late frost sometimes it's six weeks of clear beautiful warm weather and then it freezes and I have been experimenting with trying to figure out which crops can you just throw at the ground and have them work here so I have been doing that basically by by finding species and finding different cultivars and then trying to get different seed lines of things that had been grown locally or go to the local farmer's market. And when a guy has a pumpkin, I'm like, oh, where did you grow that? Oh, I grew that over here. Okay, good, I'm going to buy that pumpkin. Not because I even care to eat it, but just because (laughs) I want to grow it. And so when I came across your land-raised gardening, I was like, there's the final piece of taking all these genetics, instead of just going, okay, I know longevity spinach grows here, or I know that there are a few varieties of Jerusalem artichokes that can grow this far south. Now I can kind of look at it and go, I could maybe get it even better by taking that big Swiss army knife of genetics and putting it into the system. So as soon as I, I mean, I had seen your name before I'd seen you at permies.com. So I knew there was this guy out out West somewhere that, that had some seeds and stuff like that. But somebody said, you really need to look him up. And, and so then I read landrace gardening. I was like, this is it. This is the simplicity that I was really close to grasping. <laughs> and then I found it. So then immediately I was like, OK, I'm just going to tell everybody you got to check out this guy and check out um, the land race gardening because it's really the final piece of adjusting to your climate.
0: So what are some of those tropical
1: crops that you found really do good down where you are? OK. In in Florida and lower Alabama, I have found that diascoria yams, the diascoria alata in particular is just unbelievably good as a matter of fact it's so good that florida put it on the invasive species list which <laughs> bugs me to no end but like, oh it's food that grows so well it just escapes and grows more food i love that but apparently they didn't take very kindly to it and it also has a very aggressive cousin called the air potato it, it makes all these little aerial bulbils, and it drops them everywhere and kids pick them up and throw them at each other and play stickball with them <laughs> And anywhere where one of these things lands it starts a new Fine, that'll grow sixty feet the next year. So they cover all the trees. It's kind of like a kudzu type of a thing. And so I think they looked at the cousin and they're like, you know what? Yeah, let's just get rid of that too. But the true yams have done well for me. I've had good luck with Dioscoria pentaphylla, which is not as productive. Dioscorea alata, particularly the white and yellow type versions, are the wilder forms are just really super productive. Like a thirty-pound root in the second year. And maybe four to six pounds in the first year if you leave it in the ground it perennializes it eats the first root and then it makes another root it's like that big so you just leave it in the ground it's kind of like your survival food supply and when we grow white potatoes down here we often have issues with the bugs and with the blight and with the heat and with fire ants getting into the hills and actually chewing the roots of the potatoes up so one day they'll just wilt and you go over there and go what's wrong with that thing and you bump the plant and fire ants will swarm out of it it's just like that sort of thing where it's like potatoes are the staff of life, man. And then they just don't really like it. So that was one cassava I have found will push up easily through zone nine. It just takes longer because it freezes down and then grows back. So cassava, aka yuca, manioc, manioc, Escalenta, great crop. Here it's a little tougher because we're in zone eight B. We lose some of them and we get tiny little roots and sometimes they freeze to death. And I, so what I did was I took 10 different cultivars and I threw them into my garden two years ago, and two of them made good-sized roots by the frost. And of the one of them, unfortunately, I can't land-race breed them because there's not a long enough, this is, there's not a long enough cycle for seeds to mature on them for me to just start planting seed from them. So I'm stuck with clonal propagation. Taro does well here. Mulberries are really easy to grow here. We've got a lot of chestnut varieties that do well here. Marginal for some of the other nut trees, but chestnuts do well. Black walnut, we can get a few here and there. Pecans do well here. And in the garden, seminal pumpkins, the old seminal pumpkin variety. They're a long season, really vigorous, and there's a ton of genetic diversity inside of it. Some of the lines have gotten inbred until they're like just the little tiny ones, but they seem to keep their vigor even with the inbreeding. I've experimented with Yakon. I haven't had great r- root success on it unless it's in a really moist, high organic matter environment. Some people have said it's done well in drought, and I think I just have the wrong cultivar. And as for tomatoes, the Everglades tomato does really well here. Cherry tomatoes do well here in general, but the Everglades is like a weed here, but it's almost just a wild tomato. It's itty-bitty, so it's hard to... If we grow big tomatoes, they tend to get split and rot and all kinds of things. It gets hot too fast. So what we need is basically to fill get those calorie crops first. So we so our yams and cassavas and stuff like that. And then we have some vegetables that do really well. Okra, obviously, and uh yard long beans, those those Asian noodle beans, they do really well here. And I can actually grow them through the summer, which is out of the ordinary. What I'm trying to do now is to land raise some corn by taking a bunch of different grain corns and just mixing them all up and and letting them cross. And last year we had such a horrible year that I only got a few kernels I put them aside and we had to move. We moved to our new homestead. I put them aside somewhere. And then when I got into them, they were all eaten with weevils. So I was like, no, there goes my year." So I'm starting again. I still got the original jar where I mixed all varieties, like 20 varieties of corn. And I'm throwing them out there again. And some people think the idea is great. And some people, it just absolutely horrifies them that like (laughs) Granny's corn from Missouri that was passed down for 13 generations or something, some guy's just going to mix it up with like Uh. an experimental selection (laughs) from Cuba. Like, why would you do that? What's wrong with you? (laughs) Like washing your car with grandma's doilies.
0: Yeah. I get it. A lot of pushback from mixing up the heirlooms. So tell me about that Florida sand and how to deal with it, because that's the number one thing that people tell me about Florida is all I have is sand.
1: Oh yes. I'll tell you The best thing for the sand is to just simply plant perennials and trees and mulch them heavily like florida really wants to be forest particularly the the middle and then down through the south part of it where it's not very heavy and where it's less heavy in pines where you've got you can look and see this beautiful green like thick hardwoods oaks plums hickories wild bays and all kinds of different species but then they'll clear it and put in grass and then the grass is like patchy and weedy and it's got stickers in it and little bits of sand start showing up because in this sort of a soil, a lot of the soil, as I've heard said by the permaculturists, it's bound up in the plants themselves. A lot of the fertility is in the plants. So they work really hard to get a lot of carbon together. If you clear cut it and you try to grow annuals and you try to grow grass, it's just it's frustrating and so people come with this idea of they're just going to till an area up and do like they did in upstate New York where they had glacial soil and cool seasons and, and just plant I'm gonna just plant a row garden and then just every pest in the world just comes and shreds the stuff and diseases come in and if you think you've done everything you can go out throw out your triple 13 you can go do all the gardening stuff they did up north and it and it still just looks horrible so on the one hand is plant the stuff that'll actually go with it like the yams don't care the cassava doesn't care they the roots will push all over the place in that sand they barely care it's when you try to grow something like lettuces or beefsteak tomatoes or anything that's a little bit touchy there's some issues there now so on the one hand it's like just plant particularly if you plant food forests food forests do great in florida and they start to get stronger as After you get fresh the first two or three years, you got to dump a lot of organic matter in the soil and do a lot of chop and drop and use some of your invasive trees and just chop them to chunks and throw them on the ground. That was the best form of gardening that I found in Florida. But uh, secondarily, we've experimented with trying to fix the sand. And some people swear by deep mulching and deep mulching will really fix the sand. The problem is, is that it also attracts a lot of pest issues sometimes. Like you get the slug buildups and somebody was like, pill bugs are just eating everything that i put in my garden like pill bugs pill bugs don't normally ever do anything but yeah the pill bugs are like getting hungry for lettuce and so if you've got this big mound of organic matter suddenly it just breeds up and it fills full of bugs and you get all kinds of cutworms and and beetle grubs and stuff in that material because they're all starving in the sand so they move to your garden and then next thing you know like you can't i talked to a friend and she's like i can't plant seeds directly in my garden i gotta get transplants and put them get them about that big and put them in so the bugs won't shred them in the mulch. And so it's the mulch works really good for your perennials, but how do you actually fix the sand? So we've been experimenting with crushing up charcoal and soaking it with nutrients and then putting in uh, mixing in organic matter. If you can get like a source of manure, that's good and mix it with the sand to keep the organic matter. That's great, but nothing really lasts very long-term. Even if you deep mulch here, you have to perpetually deep mulch because the climate just eats it and even your compost here because there's not clay to make the compost sticky steve solomon told me about this. he's like if you put clay in your compost it makes the humic acid molecules stick like the humus will actually get stickier mm-hmm. and last and the the cation exchange is better and all that stuff so I started like getting clay. I would go places where I could dig clay or have a friend from North Carolina bring me buckets when he came down and then spread that over the compost pile. And it seems to make the compost stickier and actually makes it last a little better. The sand is a problem, but the sand is also really fun to dig in. Like it's super easy. <laughs> if you want to pull something up, you just grab the entire cassava plant and start pulling it and these huge roots will just come out of the ground. <laughs> you know, like digging at the that's not bad.
0: Uh, and up here, I'm doing plant breeding so that I can not break off my plants when I try to dig them in the hard clay soil. Hey, come in for a second.
1: I wanted to introduce you really quick, if you don't mind, to my sure. son Ezekiel, who has been land racing watermelons after reading your book. Here, come up here. Hello, Ezekiel. So he has, tell him how many years you've been on the so... watermelon project.
2: Probably been about five years now. I started growing watermelons and I didn't have very good luck the first year. I only got a couple that were very good. And I started doing a couple years after that and I found your book. My dad introduced it to you. Uh, sorry, to me. And <laughs> I read it and it took me like two days and I loved it. It was very informative. And I've been using that for like two years and it is so much easier to grow watermelons and any other crop like by those methods like you don't have to water or mulch every day you just breed the right the, breed the for perfect, survival right yeah
1: yeah so like we had really bad soil and he put all these watermelon seeds out and it was like the march of death and he had all these <laughs> mounds and he fed the mounds a little bit and watered them and it was like too cold and too hot and too dry and too wet. and so a lot of those a lot of the melons were like rotting and splitting and popping or not making melons, but then he saved from them. And then some of them started to just get a little invasive, almost like they made smaller melons, but they started to reseed. (laughs) And so we saved from some of the ones that reseed. We had ones like in the fall where they had reseeded and then came into the fall, which never happens. Usually watermelons are just done. So he's, he's got a patch now and we're on, we have a little better soil now, so we might be short circuiting the process, but so how many varieties did you mix?
2: Probably about 15 to 20. And- nice.
1: Is there a type that you're
0: finding you really like?
2: Let me think. I can't think of any now. The Congo. Congo. I really like Congo watermelons. Yeah. They're, they're the
1: ones with the dark, they were the really dark skin ones. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. they're pretty
2: big. they were like usually like 20 pounds or so. But
1: the orange ones were the ones that really.
2: Yeah. The orange, like the orange ones, ones are
1: like weeds now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the orange gene is linked to survival in this area. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: They didn't taste quite as good, I thought, but like they they grew a lot better. So when I cross those, then I get like a better tasting and just very good survival melon. Uh, so is
1: for flavor.
0: I love combining the traits of two different varieties: one that grows well and one that tastes good
2: yeah yeah
1: it's great so we got about two years of selecting for survival and this year probably select for survival again because you mixed in new genes and then and they'll be looking at from that point probably you'll select out that one tastes good
2: yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) it survived and it tastes good thank you i appreciate it i'm glad you came in yeah he he picked it. He picked it. I was like, look, it, you've already been saving your watermelon seeds to replant. And I was like, you've got to read this book. And he's like, okay. And he's a book <laughs> anyway. So he read the book and he's, he just absorbed all of it. He's like, all right. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. And then he went out and he's just gotten every variety of watermelon. He's like using his pocket money and hitting the seed rack for all small ones, big ones, large ones. And then every time I was ordering seeds online, he's did you look at the watermelons? I'm like, all right, I'll look at the watermelons. <laughs> you caught me. Then we end up with a couple more watermelons in there. <laughs> Sweet. But you got a generational legacy now.
0: That makes me really you know? happy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so didn't you write a book about foods for David?
1: Yes, I did. I wrote a book. Can you tell off. us about that? Yeah, it's called Create Your Own Florida Food Forest. It's for zones 8 to 11, focused on Florida, obviously, I had a volunteer artist for this one. I just put out a, an email like anybody who wants to volunteer, if you can draw, I'm going to give you some plant species to draw. So we have 54 different artists end up volunteering and we have 200 illustrations. So it's very interesting because you've got these really cartoony ones. And then there was this woman that was an architect and everything is like super measured out and square. And then there's this other people with like incredible like wrapping around 1920s style, anime style and everything. So... Each plant has its own illustration in the back of it. There's about 150 plants I cover for your your canopies, subcanopies, shrubs, herbaceous, vines. And so people are people all covered these different plants. So we've got to go this like book of illustrations as well as a a resource on Florida. And I and for the plants that I hadn't grown myself. I tried to track people down and talk to them who had grown it. And I wrote emails to nursery guys and other stuff. I even called, I was trying to figure out about sapodilla growing in Florida because it's very tropical. And I thought, I know that it grows and, uh, and I've seen them before, but uh, I found uh, online a picture of a great big one at a hotel down in the Keys. And so I called the hotel and the guy there was like really annoyed at me. <laughs> I'm like, tell me about that tree. He's like, excuse me, what tree? And I'm like, there's a sapodilla tree. And he goes, all I know is that it drops fruit all over the place, okay? And I'm like, yes, but I said, that tree's like over 100 years old. You think? I don't know. We just acquired this. I said, I'm writing a book on fruit trees. And I'm trying to just like tell me any history. He's like, I don't know. I don't know. Somebody bought the hotel. And and I'm like, ah, oh. I'm like, give me some information. So I basically put like a a short transcript where I didn't make him look as as annoying as he was, but he was obviously like, why are you calling me about a tree? But another guy I called him, I was like, okay, so you're growing allspice in Florida. I said, have you got it to bloom? What uses have you found for this tree? And he was like halfway up through the state where I didn't think it, it would pull it off. You could pull it off, and he was getting it to bloom and uh, and set sometimes. And that was, that was just really cool. Just hunt people down and and interview them. But the project took two years. I started writing it when I was still overseas. And then I came back to the States and I finished it during the pandemic and a little bit afterwards. And uh, and I was like, if we only had one in 10 people in Florida that would make a food forest in their yard, it would transform. Form the state, everybody is doing the same thing, right? You move to this incredible tropical climate where you can grow coconuts and (laughs) mangoes. And then what do you do? You put in St. Augustine grass and a few poisonous oleanders and like an ornamental spiky palm tree that you have to mow around. And I'm like, you paid $500,000 for your house and you don't even get mangoes out of it. It, it just drives me nuts and you get up to the center of the state okay, it's gotten a little it's gotten a little cooler. You can grow some low chill peaches you could grow all kinds of blueberries there's the early strawberry production is coming out of South central Florida you could grow you've got a growing season that's 350 days And then in the middle of the state they're like a big set they've got a big grass maybe it's Bahia this time or Bermuda and then they've got, or zoysia and then they've got some azaleas because they're at the range where they can actually put azaleas in so they get toxic non-edible boring i'm like where's your peach tree or grow some sand pears or something you can make some pie it's like perfect for thornless blackberries goomy berries if you look through the book it's just like species after species and these are things that grow great in florida And people are just obsessed with like irrigating and caring for grass, which doesn't even want to grow there. It's literally Uh easier to grow a food forest after a couple of years than it is to maintain a lawn. You just go around with a machete every once in a while and knock a few limbs off to open the light up. It's, I don't know. It (laughs) seems like it's just so simple, but people are very scared. So I want to give people like the idea like, you don't have to have this huge permaculture design. This is not a book that's got like, lots of lots of little circles in it and arrows and energy flow charts and like snakes coming out of things you know I didn't do any of that stuff <laughs> right so it's Bill Mollison would probably just be like wow well, whatever the degenerate generations that have followed me but I, I've told people start a bunch of stuff from seed and cuttings beg and borrow don't steal but beg and borrow from People like, go be in your plant clubs and stuff like that. Start a bunch of cuttings, start some Mexican tree spinach, start some cassava, start some pigeon peas, start some peach trees from pits. You could get a peach tree from pit to fruit in Florida in like two to three years. They're so fast. Nice. We planted them, stratified them, put them in the ground. We got all kinds of great peaches. So, you got all this wonderful stuff. And they're like, people get paralyzed because they go, oh, I got to buy, I bought a tree. Where do I plant it? And he'll walk around his yard for an hour and go oh man it might be too close to that foundation or maybe it'll get into this or maybe i might want to move it there or maybe at some point i'll put chickens over there or whatever and i'm like look learn how to propagate your own plants plant a whole ton of stuff and if you don't like it just chop it up and feed it to the other plants later (laughs) do it like nature does throw ten thousand things out there and then if it's not supposed to grow there you'll know it if it's not happy yank it out if you get a you go to your (laughs) big peach place down the road and you start 30 peach pits and you stick them all over your yard in two or three years you be like, I don't like that one. Or that one's in the way, or that one doesn't look happy. And you just chop it down. You got no loss. But there's like this analysis paralysis and people are like, would you draw a plan for my yard? I'm like, I can give you some basics. If you walk through this area, obviously don't plant something right in the middle of it. Don't plant a mulberry directly over your front porch where it's going to turn your porch purple every year. Don't stick don't stick bamboo right next to your vinyl pool that kind of thing but really florida wants to be a forest so if you plant a whole bunch of species in there and let them select themselves out i I call it machete gardening you don't like it you chop it down you put it you use it to use it for firewood use it for your rocket stove use it to feed the other stuff but you just let nature be abundant and then just hack paths through it (laughs) so that's My approach in in Create Your Own Florida Food Forest, I just am like totally excited about all the different species and different things you could try. And I give people like a half a dozen different ways to get started with a food forest.
0: Uh That's fun. Um, So so Holly's added some links to your books in the chat. And I wondered if you could tell us what is your most popular book?
1: My most popular book is Totally Crazy Easy Florida Gardening which was the first book on Florida gardening I wrote where I basically just threw a bunch of species at my backyard, the ones that lived and those became, I planned my next gardens around those key species. So the yams and the yardlong beans and collards and okra and things that, that really did well in the state and some of those varieties. Now, if I was to rewrite it, I would have a bunch more on the seed saving side of it and on breeding your own, but basically it's a It's an overview of if you grow these plants, you will not fail. Like you may have some bad years, but you're not going to fail. If you have these plants, they're so close to being weeds that you can just expect that you're going to get food. And people that have come down to Florida and they're absolutely shell-shocked by they can't grow anything. It's every trick they have doesn't work. It's the genetics of the plants. It's the species of the plants, the adaptation of the plants. It's not you. It's just that your plants don't know how to live there. They just die. Look, at, if you're from Canada and you go down to Cancun and you lay on the beach, you will burn because you're not used to it. You're just totally not used to it. And, uh, and so we always have we have family members that would come down from up north and we'd be like, OK, we're going to go to the beach. We're not going to go to the beach in the middle of the day. We're going to take them to the beach in the late afternoon, in the morning, so they can adjust to it. But there are people that live right near the equator that are super, super comfortable. It got the skin for it. it. got the the genetics to just be in the sun. No problem. But like my friends down in the islands, man, if it gets like below 70 degrees, they're going to freeze to death. They're like almost <laughs> hypothermia when it's 60. It takes a long time to, to readjust if you go up north. So it's not the plant's problems. So totally crazy, easy Florida gardening. And then after that, I'd say probably the two neck and neck would be books that I did not write just for the Florida market. And that is uh, compost everything, the good guide to extreme composting, where I take the approach of how nature composts by throwing things on the ground, instead of making it super, super complex, I try to make it really simple and tell people, this is how you just don't throw away your food scraps anymore. Really don't worry about it if you're not getting exact results. Like the 5,000 rules, throw out that rule book from the extension office. Here's how you compost everything. And then the other book is Grow or Die, The Good Guide to Survival Gardening, which is basically how do you do a stripped down garden? If things get rougher, what would you want to have? What would you want to plant? How would you do it? What's your basic philosophy of gardening if you can't just go down to Home Depot and buy a sack of fertility? So that would probably be them.
0: So do you follow permaculture principles in your work?
1: I follow most of them, like the, the zones. I follow the zones. I do a lot of chop and drop. I find that permaculture has expanded to such a point that any kind of traditional gardening is now called permaculture. So it's almost hard to figure out where permaculture is. This is my permaculture garden. I was like, yeah, but that's there were people doing that 300 years ago too. It just didn't have that name permaculture. Like like the idea of cycling nutrients, right? We're gonna go out to the field, haul a bunch of manure in and put it into the gardens and then plant in between it. And you chop this down and you let this rot here. And a lot of these things, I knew, I knew islanders that were practicing permaculture and they'd never heard of it. Like this one guy would take all this brush that he, he would cut all this brush when he cleared out field to plant his yams. And, and he would put it underneath a tree and then he would tie his donkey to the tree. And the donkey would just go around that tree and crush and manure the stuff and he would bring forage to the donkey and the donkey was like stomping and peeing and manuring all this brush and just walking through it and churning it up and then he would let it rot down and then that was his food for the yams later but it was like that's like a permaculture thing (laughs) i'm gonna find the energy of the donkey and then join it up with the energy of to increase the agitation whatever so now what i don't the thing that will get me in trouble with some people is that I will till if I need a big space, I will till it up and I will put in food because I have 10 children. So gardening for us is really, it's part of our budget. It's important to, for us to garden well. And when we move to a new property, first thing I do is like that big area is getting tilled and planted. Trying to get a dump truck full of wood chips or straw or something that I don't I know hasn't been sprayed. I am better off just tilling the area up making the beds and over time I move more and more organic matter and I get my compost systems up and you build up but I think that like we lose sight sometimes we get on a cultish I will never till the ground like I will never break the earth and uh, and so some of the no-till people will really they get angry at me occasionally and and occasionally I bug them (laughs) I I, I agree in principle with much of what the no-till people do but I also think that there's a a place for just getting food out of the ground as you grow. Because even if I'm doing extractive farming, extracting food from the soil, like in a way that like, wow, that's harsh. Like my neighbors, right? They'll till the ground up and they'll use triple 13 and they'll grow their own vegetables. And you'd be like, I can't believe they grow them that way. Yeah, but you know what? Them doing that with that triple 13 and their tiller is still better than buying food from around the world from, shift 5,000 miles or 3,000 miles. And you don't know how that was sprayed. You don't know how that was used. All the responsibility has been offshored. And you're like, look at how wonderful and green I am that I have one pot of herbs and I've never turned soil in it. (laughs) But they're actually probably doing better than you. So sometimes it's these subtleties where I'm like, I'm not going to get on their case. They're gardening. For goodness sakes, most people aren't even gardening. And if you come over there, I can't believe you're tilling. You should quit. Kill yourself. (laughs) holy cow man no wait calm down there's like people get really cultish about it another thing that i've done is if i need magnesium i'll go get the epsom salts out for some reason epsom salts are okay but like triple 13 that's beyond the pale like it, it's i guess it's something you could soak in a bath with then it's okay to use in the garden. Epsom salts that's good triple 13 definitely not i've done some soil nutrient balancing with uh With Steve Solomon, where I bought some of the original uh, or the uh, individual, like manganese and phosphorus and different forms that would be considered elemental, which you could say that's chemical fertilizing. But if I see that I have a deficiency sometimes, I'll just treat it that way. But I don't ever use pesticides, I can't stand the pesticides. I'm like, I don't care if the plant got a little bit of phosphorus or nitrogen or something but i don't want to eat malathion so there's a there's this wall where i'm like i don't like that and i think that it's more ultimately destructive and i also think that the more that you intervene the more you play god the less god's design of all the checks and balances you've removed that and now you've got to be all the checks and balances so once you start fertilizing heavily and spraying and picking everything and doing all this stuff like to try and make your garden super super duper perfect but the more you have to do because you've just killed like if you go in my garden there's holes in all the leaves of plants and I'm like I don't care because I could turn the leaves over and I see the ladybug I'm like there's the answer to the holes if I had sprayed for that thing then I would have killed that thing so generally yeah I've read a lot of the permaculture literature I'm a huge book junkie And I would hold mostly to permaculture principles, but some things like that. I think that as I develop garden systems and I'm in the same place for longer, I have less and less where I need to get anything out. Now that we have enough space for cows, for instance, we've got dairy cows. So the dairy cows, I can use the dairy cow manure and I can feed all the gardens and I could build awesome compost piles now. But before, when I was living more in suburbia, we couldn't do that. And most of the manure had long-term persistent herbicide in it. So we couldn't trust that it wouldn't kill the garden. So it's it's really great to talk about permaculture principles, but practically speaking, for somebody in a suburban backyard, a lot of it works, but some of it like to get enough materials. If you, even if you're reading these books, it's like, go and get a wheel of, if you can get, if you can get hay or if you can get wood chips or something, but you can't sometimes. So that person may just be like, it's look, it's still better if you grow food. It's not ideal and we all work towards the ideal. It's like sanctification. You're working towards sanctification over okay. time. Like progressive holiness, rather than like where you started, it looks like a failure, but you're going to keep getting, be getting better if you keep working at it. So yeah, so I'd be 98% permaculture on the scale probably.
0: <laughs> yeah, I get a lot of flack from the permaculturists about tilling my garden. But it's like I'm feeding 20 families and you grew a rosemary
1: plant without. That's right. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Okay. So this couple I was talking about, they were using triple 13 and they used some pesticides, but they grew like these 100 foot rows of green beans. Hmm. And I was like trying to do the lasagna gardening thing in these little beds and struggling along. Meanwhile, they had tons of food. And they took baskets and baskets of food to the local food bank in town, <laughs> which is still going to be way better than beans that have been shipped in from overseas, et cetera. Plus they're directly giving back to the community with that. So if I'm feeding 12 people and I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to get food if I didn't throw out fertilizer. Now, this is not normally the case because I've usually got something I can feed with. I feed with every, everything. But if I was, if I really didn't know what to do, and I threw out 10, 10, 10. It's not like you're going to just be banned to outer darkness or permaculture forever. <laughs> you, you're a terrible person. There's levels. It's like if you throw out a plastic bottle, first of all, you shouldn't have had a plastic bottle. That's terrible. You had a plastic bottle. Somebody gives you a bottle of water. You throw it out. Somebody will say you should have recycled that. But if you do the research, sometimes it actually costs more energy to recycle the plastic than it does to landfill it. Now, what are you going to do? There are no good options. There's no good options, and you can't undrink the water. What are you gonna do? Right, there's subtleties that people don't get sometimes.
0: So, can you tell us about your YouTube channel?
1: Yes, I was a writer first, and then I ended up a YouTuber because people kept saying, I wish you'd do more videos, you should do videos on that, and this and that, and the other thing. So, I started to push it, and I said, Okay, I'll do the YouTube thing. And uh, so, I'm on YouTube as David the Good. I don't like to take sponsors. And I don't really like to. I don't like to follow the rules all that much. So you'll see if you go to the channel. Sometimes, it, video by its nature is not as an intelligent. It's not as an intelligent a medium as writing. If I write, I feel like I can get the entire thought across. But when you're on camera, you got to see my ugly face. You see my garden. <laughs> see all that stuff, and you're kind of like, this guy. Do I like this guy's personality or whatever? If I read somebody's writing. I'm just getting the pure ideas, but but there's a rhetorical side to YouTube. And if you don't keep it entertaining, if you don't do any clickbait type of stuff or whatever, your channel does not grow. And that's what's hard to get across sometimes. I would rather just put information off. So go read my books. But with YouTube, I'm like, you know what? It's a rhetorical medium. People are going to have to look at me anyways. So let's make it as entertaining as possible. And hopefully some people will will go read my books and they'll see that I'm not actually that insanely goofy all the time. But if, if it was not fun for me to do YouTube, I would quit it. And so when I was like, I wish you would do this, or I wish you would do this, I, you'll, the amount of comments that I get and the amount of emails and everything gets to be completely overwhelming. And what I've also realized is that people that are not doing it, who have not figured out how to make YouTube work, they don't understand why you have to do some things that you do. Like I did this experiment, right? I did a video called Comfrey is Terrible. Talking about how comfrey is not the best plant for my climate. It doesn't work that great. Comfrey is Terrible got like 44,000 views. People were like, oh, comfrey he doesn't like comfrey. How can he be into permaculture and not like comfrey? Comfrey is like the holy grail of permaculture. You don't like comfrey. It's like saying you don't like Sepp Holzer. So the comfrey is terrible, tons of views. I'm like, okay, so three days later, I had this plan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a video from the opposite angle on why comfrey is amazing. And so I talk about back when I lived in Tennessee, comfrey was a, an excellent accumulator. Talked about how I had healed cuts with comfrey and, uh, and some of the various uses for it. First, I talked about all the negatives, how it's not great for our climate and how it got better options. Then I talked about if you were in a great climate, here's why it's an amazing plant. The one where it's like Comfrey is amazing got like 17,000 views compared to 44,000. And so then after that, when people didn't expect it and they didn't realize I was running a joke series, (laughs) I did a video called Comfrey. And I went out in the garden (laughs) and I just started singing this song about how ambivalent I am about about Comfrey. And then it's interspersed with me arguing with my wife about how I'm really not going to destroy my YouTube channel. I'm definitely not. She's like, Sweetheart, how many people are watching you? You're going to just make yourself like, <laughs> and it's like the camera's pointing at the ground, shaking around and like looking at nothing. And it's, we're having this argument and it just keeps, it's this really painful video. And you're like, what in the world? So the Comfrey is so, so got like 11,000 views, but it was an interesting experiment to see people gravitate towards the negative. Comfrey is terrible rather than Comfrey is amazing. Everybody knows, like, oh, Comfrey is amazing. But if soon, if you're like, if you're like, I love Joe Biden, people will be like, oh, okay. If you're like, I hate Joe Biden, people are like, oh, why does he hate Joe Biden? So like, it's, you've just, you could be something polarizing, but the way you approach that polarizing thing, of like why I love land race gardening, probably won't do as well as why there's no way land race gardening would work for me. People are like, oh, why? It's like they, <laughs> they pursue that negative and it's, frustrating because when you're writing and you're really enthusiastic and you love something and you tell people and then you put it on youtube and people are like oh yeah that's cool (laughs) you've almost got to couch it if i say here's how i turn everything into liquid compost doesn't do as well as this ancient secret will transform your garden (laughs) ah you type it out and you're like i feel like i'm selling vacuum cleaners (laughs) it's true though so the information gets across but by its very nature that's the way video works and yeah. and so I just try to be who I am and uh, I met somebody in person and they said to me like you're just the same in person like you're as goofy in person as you're on your videos I was like yeah except when I'm writing I'm dead serious when I'm writing <laughs> totally <laughs> not really <laughs> I have fun the books too but
0: what, one of your favorite videos that our community liked was the one about, I am going to destroy 50 varieties of corn now.
1: <laughs> this man <laughs> with the corn like, yeah, I love that sort of thing. And I And what I like to do too with the videos is to give people things to think about that they are not hearing. Like a lot of what I notice, which you probably notice as well, is you've got this like wikipedia approach to gardening where everybody passes the same information on over and over again right like, mm. like composting don't put meat in your compost pile make sure your carbon to nitrogen ratio is 25 to one make sure that you don't add bread or oils or bones or whatever and so what are you going to do you're going to make And then it says, make a cubic yard. What are you going to do? How are you going to get enough lettuce scraps (laughs) to make a pile that big? And what are you supposed to do with your meat and your bones? You're going to throw them away? So you're telling me, these rules are telling me that I should throw away the rest of that chicken meal, but I should compost the parsley. (laughs) But then you go down to the garden center and it's like, one of the best organic amendments you can add to your garden for a quick boost of nitrogen is blood meal. And if you need phosphorus, add bone meal. Bone meal (laughs) and blood meal are byproducts of the slaughter waste in the slaughter industry. And and I'm like, but we're not allowed to do that? Why not? What happens if a raccoon dies in the woods? Does God send (laughs) angels down to carry that raccoon away and dump it in the landfill? It doesn't work that way. It's like it gets recycled. The trees eat the raccoons. And so I, what I spent like a long time doing is like trying to figure out what's the basic thing behind this. What would happen to this thing if I didn't throw it in the landfill? What's the worst that could happen if I throw a chicken in my compost pile? <laughs> the neighbors complain maybe because the dog got in it and dragged the dead chicken over the yard. Yeah, they probably wouldn't even know <laughs> unless they put it on YouTube. But yeah, so to try and look and go, why are we saving heirlooms? And, and 200 individuals of corn, you got 200 individuals of Hickory King that you have to have in your yard every year to try and fight off inbreeding depression. But even if you do that, what happens after you saved it for 10 years? Why is it that when you look at hybrid corn, it's like you got this gigantic ear, but the parents were like these little weenie things, why is it that they can make hybrids but we can't why is it that that for some reason granny smith was able to breed one of the best apples that was ever invented for pies and one of the most beautiful apples in all of history she could actually breed that apple by saving crab. she was throwing crab apple waste out from making pies she was using sour apples and making pies throwing the waste down into her yard and a seedling grew she didn't cut it down but if you go to the extension officer you go to almost any youtube channel they're like Don't grow trees from seed. What you're going to want to do is graft on an established variety so you can make sure that you maintain something good. Because if you plant apples from seed, you're going to get horrible fruit. Everybody will tell you that. Our ancestors, how long ago was it that we had 2,000 varieties of apple commonly available across the United States? And now we're down to what, like eight? Mm -hmm. Like eight in the store? You went to a different town, you would get different apples. We've lost all of that regional, like, cool stuff. And so when I'm on, on YouTube, I'm like, why do you have this assumption? Here, we're going to plant fruit trees from seed. And then I'll have somebody write me the long scribe inside. No, the reason <laughs> the commercial guys never do this is because you don't know what you're going to get and blah, blah, blah. I know that. I know why commercial guys do it. I know why there's 1 million naval oranges all planted across groves in the center of Florida. It's because they want exactly the same thing over and over again. But you'll often see, such and such variety was a chance sport that showed up at the edge of orchard and was analyzed by the University of Florida and found to have profound disease resistance to blah, blah, blah. But don't you do that. Definitely don't you do that. But (laughs) like the the cognitive dissonance there is it's like everybody has the rules following and they also want me to make rules for them. Tell me how to do this and tell me how to do this and tell me how to do this. And I'd rather say here, I want to tell you how to think about it (laughs) So then you can answer the questions yourself. If you have an underlying philosophy of let's experiment, let's try it. You know, somebody said, will this variety of avocado grow in my area? I said, I don't know, plant a bunch of pits. And if any of them lives, then yes. That's the, that's the fun way. Now I could go and I could check the frost uh, tolerances and stuff. And I'll I'll give people that information. It says that this variety has survived 12 degrees. But, but if you really want something awesome, you got to do it yourself. And, uh-huh. and you've got to stop fearing. It's the same thing with machete gardening, just plant stuff all over the place to see what lives. And, and then you'll have success.
0: Thank you. So we have about nine minutes left. Does anyone have a question for David? Logan.
1: Um, I have two that I hope are quick. I'm also in Florida. So my two is one, did you have to modify light requirements for any of your crops? Ones that normally you have to put in full sun, for instance, like tomatoes or corn. Did you end up in Florida putting them under shade a lot of times and did they grow better that way? And then do you think that using land rice gardening genetics can make up for Florida's sand rather than trying to modify the soil, like just leave it the crappy sand that it is. And then maybe they eventually can find uh, there can be maybe deeper roots or ones that are better able to absorb nutrients deeper down. Yes. Yes. So on the uh, on the sand side of things, I do think that probably repeated and ongoing exploration would find us stuff. I started the process by just going to the ethnic markets and just buying up all the seeds and bulbs and stuff that I could find and then planted them out. And now after having done that, I thought, you know what, if I had been saving seeds back when I was doing that exploration more. I would save seeds incidentally, like some of those yard beans. Oh yeah. I'd put some aside and that sort of thing. Now there's some dry ones. I'll just leave a few, but it was so easy to just go down to the local market and get it. But those were probably better adapted to India or Korea or wherever that variety had originally come from. Yeah. I think there are probably some some plants that just may not have the genetic ability to adapt to Florida and some things that it's that they don't want to set seed in Florida, but they, because they have a tropical life to them and then like they'll grow in florida but they don't want to reproduce in florida and then some things when they bring it to florida you know like way over reproduce like the uh, the Malaluka trees that they planted to try and drain the everglades ended up being a massive invasive problem because they they made 10 times the seeds they were like thank you for taking us out of australia we're glad to be here (laughs) but so yes quite possibly and i wish i had done more with it when i was still there um but secondarily on light requirements Yeah, if it says full sun for Florida, you really probably only need about, if it says full sun on the seed packet or something, and you probably only need four hours. And I did experiments with like, how far into the shade could I plant things? And I found that like citruses, I could get the frost protection for the occasional cold night by putting them underneath the canopy of another tree, but they would still produce fruit. They might not produce exactly as much fruit, but they still produce fruit. And that's better than having to go out there and cover them with frost blankets, And then I found that if my vegetable garden, particularly in the morning, if you get the morning, like sun from the east, that's the best for your vegetable garden. That early morning sun in Florida is the best because by the time it gets to the west, usually the temperatures are up to the nineties. Sometimes if you're in the middle of the state, it's a little more moderate near the coasts, but the Western sun, like if I have sunlight until noon, I would count that as full sun for sure. And then if something looks like it's struggling, I will chop some branches down above it and let some light in and often that fixes it. But thank you, Logan. Thank you. Anyone else? Oh,
3: yes. I have have two questions for David, the Wood. Yes, sir. All right. I'm glad that you guys can hear me. First question I got is I went to all those random Latin stores. They had all sorts of dried peppers and I land raised a whole crap ton of peppers. They were like, Dried mirasol peppers, which are actually aji amarillos. Then there were also poblano peppers, which are ancha peppers. I'm grabbing like a whole crap ton of seeds. Everything I can possibly think of. Everything. As long as it tasted good, I saved the seeds from it. Oh, yeah. What would happen if I just start land racing all of those and letting them all hybridize? Will I create something awesome? That's what I'm wondering about. <laughs> there are all different species. they are capsicum... Anum capsicum, bacanthum. Then there's also pubescence, which is that, like, black Probably,
1: seed. yeah. You probably get some chinense. Yeah. Yeah. So some of them will cross and some of them won't. Like, people know if you put your bell peppers and your jalapeno peppers, they'll cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yet, yeah, th- what I think you're going to end up with is you will end up with good peppers, but they are going to go towards the hot. I think that the sweets are probably going to be overwhelmed and you're going to end up with spicy hot peppers but what i have noticed is in florida the smaller bodied peppers seem to be the most resistant to the diseases and everything so like the thai peppers do great cayenne peppers did great for me the larger the peppers when i start to get up to bell peppers and stuff i had to really baby them but i had a friend from puerto rico and he had this Giant bush of cayennes in his backyard that was like six feet tall. And he said, David, that thing's been there for three years and it just keeps making them. Wait, so, so it
3: survives winter there?
1: It will survive winter if you are not in an area of Florida that frosts. So this was down in South Florida, zone 10/11. They will survive the winter. Sometimes I had cayennes grow back from the roots in north central Florida after temperatures that went down into the 20s. If I mulch around the base oh. of them, like one in four or five of them would survive, and they would come back, and they would grow pretty fast, and they would start bearing again. And um, how guess, thick was the mulch? Uh, what's that? How thick was the mulch? Like, was it? Which? Oh, I just gave them like a couple of inches around the bottom. Usually, if I could get like loose fall leaves or dry grass clippings or something like that, and put it around the base, I've kept a lot of stuff alive that way. That's not really supposed to be alive because most of the frost Dang. events in Florida are very fast. Like they happen overnight. It's four hours it goes below freezing and the next morning it's up to 40 and and so I got things like moringa trees to live up in the north part of the state even though they would freeze all the way to the ground if I left them uncovered I could put a pile of leaves over it and
3: uh, dang that is uh, awesome
1: yeah (laughs) you should be able to get perennial peppers out of them and if you put your peppers in pots too give them big pots like 20 gallon pots or something you can drag them in to a covered area and probably get peppers for three, four, five years even. I had a habanero that did three years for me, no problem.
3: Mm-hmm. Because peppers are already by default perennial, just winter always kills them every time.
1: Except for the capsicum annuum, some of the the bells and the jalapenos will just die on you and that's it in the first mm-hmm. year. But, but a lot of the other ones are definitely perennial. And I don't know how much crossing they'll do inside a genus, but I think they can hybridize. Yeah. have Thank it. you.
3: Yeah. I also had a second question, if you don't mind.
1: Sure.
3: Yeah, I was looking at, I want to start, like, gardening and going the whole permaculture route, but I have no land. I'm, like, stuck in the suburbs. None of my neighbors are interested in that shit. Like, oh, man. I was like, (laughs) oh, man, I I don't know how to get land. That's the thing.
1: At one point, I asked a church, oh, like, if they were going to use this back area that they had. And I was attending the church. I said, are you going to use this back area? And they said, No. I said could we do put some gardens back there and they said sure so if you have a community like that's one option uh, another option is to just go around the neighborhood and and like be nice to people and, and strike up <laughs> conversations because at one point another point i was renting when we had moved overseas when we only had a balcony area we had like an upstairs apartment with four bedrooms in it so it was big enough for us barely and Then we had this big balcony and I grew some plants and pots on it, but I talked to the landlady. I was like, man, I really wish I had a place to garden. She said, well, I don't have any room in my yard, but like one of my cousins owns this building lot in the neighborhood. Maybe she would let you build, do a garden on it. So she called the cousins. I don't care. We're going to clear it in a couple of years and build a house there. But uh, if he wants to go and knock a couple of trees down or something, and put a garden in fine. So we did, we went over there and cleared it and used it. And it, it really is like, being really friendly and making community connections and just tell people, I'm looking for a little bit of land to garden on. Hey, I don't mind sharing half the produce with you. You could try some of my hot peppers. Do you like hot peppers? So you make the connections, but first it's, if you're really, if you're just friendly and trustworthy, Mm -hmm. a lot of times people will open up and return And you'll end up, if you bring somebody a gift, that's like the biggest open door, bring somebody a potted plant who has a garden. And that person will be your mm. friend forever. See anybody gardening? Go over and say, hey, how are you? I'm so excited. Just be friendly. I love your garden. What are you growing? Say, I'm Philip. <laughs> like, I'm i into uh, breeding peppers. Oh, breeding peppers. Really? How's that work? Da, 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 da. Next thing you know, you got a friend. And then you say, look, at, I'm looking for some land. If you know anybody that's got a little bit of space where I could garden, you never know. So you
3: know. that is pretty awesome.
1: People look for opportunities to be generous if you like if you have open hands. It's amazing how people will just open their hands back sometimes. Now some people are just jerks and they never will, but that's their loss. Most well, people but are they're like, not the majority. Most people are blessed to give something away. Yeah. Ah, man.
3: <laughs> thank you, David. The good. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks, you, Phil. Uh, You're so, the good
3: for a reason.
0: <laughs> thank you, David. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, Holly and Julia, for facilitating our meeting today. And it's been a pleasure, David.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I'm honored to have a chance to talk to you in person after having read your books and watched some of your videos. And it was just a really great connection. And it was interesting that you were over here on this journey. And I was over here on this journey. And it was like, we hit this. Cro- I was like, there it is. That's <laughs> He was working on the piece I was missing. It's like the great invention happens because somebody else finally invented this one piece that finishes it. They're like, "Yes, ah, yes, oh, this is it." So, anyhow, you've been a great encouragement to me, and and thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank.
3: Thank you for responding and being so willing to come on. We really have enjoyed it today.
1: Oh, you bet! Thank you for uh, first spending some of your Saturday on me. I appreciate it. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Have
3: thanks. a good weekend.
1: You too. God bless. Bye, everyone.
3: Bye.
2: Bye. Bye.